Well, I want to talk to you today about discerning the times. <clears throat> you guys, um, do you sense that we are living in different times? Different maybe than what you remember growing up or different than what you maybe heard your parents talk about? Have you noticed that people are proposing to do different things and want to govern our country in different ways and want to pass certain laws? Did y'all read where in China they're developing a way to basically through uh, the internet, they'll be able to create a profile for every person in China and they'll know whether you're a good person or not, whether you're safe for the Chinese people or whether you're dangerous for the Chinese people. And th they're actually setting this system up, and it's their goal to have the system in place in a relatively short period of time. And so the goal in China is that the government will be able to know whether you're a friend or whether you're not. Now, we're not talking about whether you're going to go take bombs and blow a building up. We're talking about whether you agree with everything the government believes and everything the government does. Whether you're going to go with the flow or whether you're going to oppose because you disagree. For instance, if you lived in China and you were a Christian and you believe that Jesus is Lord and the gospel is the only hope of salvation you would be opposed to the government. And the government would be able to find out who you are and what you believe, and they could label you an enemy of the state, and then they would deal with you accordingly. Now, they're not saying what they're going to do with people like that, but we know from history what they did with people like that. They did one of two things. They killed them, and they're still doing that today, or they re-educate them which means they put you in a place and they basically torture you until your will breaks and you submit to the will of the state. Now that almost sounds like some science fiction movie, except it's not. It's real. Well, did you know that in Canada, it's against the law to use certain pronouns? In Canada, you can't use certain pronouns. So, for instance, as a pastor, as a preacher, or as a teacher, college professors and teachers now can't use he or she. There's certain pronouns because you can't distinguish between gender anymore because that's discriminatory. It's bigoted. It's racist. It's hateful. So, we don't say he or she. You, you know, this is real. There's a professor in Canada who is being threatened with fines because he refuses to use the pronouns the state tells him he must use. And he's fighting it. And do you know this guy's an atheist? He's not even a Christian. He's an atheist. And he says, this isn't right. But yet, there are churches, too many churches, that go right along with it and say, that's okay. 
We don't have a problem with that. In fact, we'll change our Bibles, we'll change our hymns to be pronoun neutral so that we don't make anyone feel less than. So God is not a he. God is just, I don't know what he is, but he's not the God of the Bible. Now, that's just to the north of us in Canada. And you have all kinds of other things happening in other parts of the world. And there's things happening right here in America that the news media doesn't really talk about because they don't want people to get all up in arms. So they're just quietly trying to make things different. But if you've been paying attention, and I'm wondering, are you paying attention? If you've been paying attention, it's not happening so quietly anymore in America. They very openly sued and shut down bakeries that won't bake cakes for certain groups of people. And they didn't have a problem closing those people's businesses down and bankrupting them in the name of tolerance. So what we see happening is it's not so quiet. It's not so undercover anymore. It's becoming more and more open. The hostility toward Christianity is is not just with a fringe element anymore. It is becoming mainstream in America. The problem with the church is the church has lived under the blessings of our freedom and our liberty that the grace of God has provided for us for many centuries, that we just assume that that's the way it's going to be and that's the way it's going to continue to be. And we are blind and we're not seeing and we're not discerning what's happening in our country. And those who are opposed to God and those who are opposed to everything this scripture stands for, they're not quietly working, they're very loudly working. And they're making it seem that if you stand up for the truth of the Scripture, you are hateful, you are mean-spirited, and you don't have a right to say or to believe or to do. Well, right now what they say is you can believe that, but you've got to keep it to yourself. But that's not going to last very long. Because if Canada will rewrite the laws and tell you what pronouns you have to use when you're talking to people, it's not very far down the road that we're going to see things that are going to shock us. Things that we would just believe are impossible, that could never happen in this country, but they're happening right now. So I want to talk to you today about discerning the times. Because what much of the church has done so far is nothing. We still have our sermons every week. We still build our churches. We still try to draw large crowds of people in by telling them how wonderful life is and how successful and how happy they can be. And all that's great. I want to be happy. I want to be successful. I want to have a wonderful life. But the reality is We're living in a different day, in a different time. And if we don't begin to discern and understand what's happening, what what we believed would be impossible just a few short years ago 
is going to come down on us so heavily and so forcefully that we're not going to know what to do. The people of God need to be a people who can discern the times and the seasons that, that we live in today. It's too easy for us to live distracted lives or to live in willful denial of the truth of what is happening in our culture and in our nation. In elections are not the answer. Elections are the consequence of the problem. Elections are not the problem. Elections are the consequence of the problem. We think we just need to vote a different group of people in and everything's going to be all right. No, that's not true. Because the problem's not with who's sitting in the seats in Washington. The problem is what's contained in the chests of those men and women sitting in the seats in Washington. Until hearts are changed, it doesn't matter. We can shuffle seats all day long, but until hearts are changed, we're going to have the same issue. And hearts aren't changed by voting. Hearts are changed by praying. Hearts are changed by the power of God, not by the power of the ballot. Now, I'm all for voting. I voted. I would have voted more than once if I could have legally done that, but I couldn't. So I'm a huge proponent, I'm a huge advocate of voting because I think God gave us this system of government. It's a gift that God has given to us and we better start using it and we better start using it wisely or we may find that it goes away. And if you don't think it can't go away, then you need to break open your history books and start reading the history of humanity. Because humanity today is no different than the humanity that took a rock or a club or whatever and killed his brother shortly after creation. Cain murdered Abel. That humanity that murdered his brother is the same humanity we have today. It's the same humanity that's murdered over 60 million people babies in America alone since 1973. But we're all for the children, right? At least that's what we like to say publicly. If the church does not begin to discern the signs around us, we'll find ourselves in increasingly difficult times. And the sooner we begin to discern the times and know what we ought to do and then do it, the sooner we will see God heal our land. The healing of our land can only come from God. And God will only move to heal our land as God's people seek His face and pray. How do we know that? Because that's what the Bible teaches us. Now, I know we don't always like to follow the Bible because sometimes it's inconvenient, it's not the most easy thing for us to do, but if we want to just be honest and we're serious about seeing things change, then we've got to go back to what the Bible says and we've got to follow and do what the Bible says to do. So let me read you a couple of scriptures. Let me begin in Matthew chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. 
This is Jesus talking. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Luke chapter 12, verse uh, 54 through 57. This is again is Jesus. Then he also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Yes, And why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, the sons of Issachar were commended because they had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. That was spoken about the sons of Issachar when there was political upheaval taking place in the nation. There was instability spiritually and politically at that time as the transition in leadership was taking place to David and the sons of Issachar, knowing and understanding the times, said, we must choose David. Though there were many reasons why they could have made the other choice, but they understood something that others did not understand. As God's people, the church should have understanding of the times. They should know what ought to be done and how to judge what is right. As the church, this is our responsibility. I want you to hear that. This is our responsibility. We are the people of God. We are the salt and the light in the earth This is our responsibility. It's not the politician's responsibility first. It is the people of God's responsibility first. We need to quit just sloughing off everything to the professionals and we need to take responsibility for what is ours to take. And it is the responsibility of God's people to discern, to understand to know the times that we're living in. It's our responsibility, and we must not ignore it, deny it, or shun it. We must embrace our responsibility to understand the times and to obediently walk in that understanding. That is important for us now. It's important for the generations that are coming after us. I want you to think for a moment. I was born in 1961. I can remember a lot of things, and I can, in those short years that I've been on this earth, I have seen a lot of things change. There were things that we fantasized about, watched science fiction movies about that are absolutely reality today. Where just a few short years ago, they were impossibilities, except 
and the imaginations of men. Well, that's fine and good if we're talking iPhones and laptops and broadband and wireless. That's, that's all good. That's made life easier, more convenient, more productive. But there's other things that we imagined that we didn't think would ever come true, that have come true, that are not good. That marriage would one day be redefined. Not according to the Bible, but now according to man's imagination and man's perversion. That we would legalize the murder of unborn babies and not only legalize it, but we promote it and tell people it's right and it's good. And now we have, I don't know if you saw the article just a few weeks ago, where you have a gathering of priests and pastors who are actually going to the abortion clinics and they're blessing them, they're anointing them, laying hands on them and blessing the abortion clinics for the work that they're doing for women's health. You think I'm joking? That's not a joke. That's real. These are, these are pastors and priests who confess to be Christian in their Christian garb with their Bibles going to the abortion clinic and blessing the abortion clinic. Bless you as you murder the babies. Bless you as you rip the babies limb from limb and smash their skulls and suck out their brains. Bless you. And we put it on the front page of the news and we celebrate it as loving and tolerant and progressive. How wonderful that is that we can actually bless abortion clinics now. And there, there is the church condoning that, putting their blessing on it. Are you discerning the times that we're living in? You think these are just anomalies? You think these are just things that are just kind of weird? You know, it's not normal. No, it is weird to me, but it is becoming very normal. The murder of 3,000 babies a day is so normal now that we don't even talk about it. If we had a 9-11 every day, can you imagine what your news would be consumed with? Yet we have a 9-11 every day and no one talks about it. In fact, we say it's perfectly acceptable. Are you discerning the times that you're living in? Are you seeing what's happening? Or is it happening so slowly and is it being covered up and promoted in ways so craftily that, that we're not aware of it? Well, Jesus said, if we, if we can look at the weather, if we can look at the sky and know what the weather's going to be like, we ought to be able to look at the times and understand what's happening. And what's coming. If you can look at the sky and you know you can do this. If you didn't know this, it is true. If you ever see a beautiful, red, colorful, beautiful sunset, the kind that everybody likes to take pictures of, 
that means the next day is going to be a nice day. You don't, you, you don't need to watch the weather the next day. If you see a beautiful sunset, you're going to have a nice day the next day. So by looking at the signs, just the sun and the sunset, we can know what's coming. Jesus said if you can do that with, with, the, with the weather, you better be able to do that with the things that are happening in the earth spiritually. And these are spiritual things. In discerning the signs of our times, we need to remember some things. We need to remember these things. Remember that God's ways are contrary to the ways of the world. In fact, God's ways are so contrary to the ways of the world that the world considers God and his ways utter foolishness. That's why the world is opposed to you as the people of God. They think you're fools for believing what you believe, for standing for what you stand for, because it's absolutely contrary to the world. As a point of emphasis for us, the Apostle Paul Paul makes sure that we understand that God does not work according to the wisdom of this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, if we're not discerning people and we see God using foolish, weak, and base things, if we're living, trying to live according to the world's wisdom, if we're trying to get along with the world and at the same time confessing faith in Jesus Christ and God begins to do this foolish thing, we're going to have to make a choice. Either we're going to go with God and look foolish or we're going to have to stand with the world so that we can be accepted based on their wisdom. Because the wisdom of the world is not the same thing as the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. So if you stand with God, I promise you, you will look like a fool. The question is, are you willing to look like a fool and stand with God? Well, your immediate answer is probably going to be, well, yes, pastor, I am. But you better hold on for a minute. You better think about what that might cost you with your friends and your family. What that might cost you with those that you really value. With those that you really want their acceptance. What happens if you look foolish standing with God and they think you are a fool? And they begin to tell you how foolish you look and how foolish you are to stand with God. And don't you know that we're living in the 21st century? Why are you holding on to this Bible? It's not relevant for today. Everybody knows. Get with the program. When that pressure begins to come against you, what are you going to do? When it begins to cost you 
What are you going to do? Don't think you might not ever have to answer that question. Because the chances are you will have to answer that question sooner than you might think. If you're discerning the times that we're living in, you need to see what's happening. You need to know what's happening. You need to understand that God does not always work. He never works according to the ways of the world or according to the the wisdom of the world. God chooses, remember, the foolish, the weak, and the base things so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, while that could seem disturbing, what it really should do is bring comfort to us. It should remind us to never lose hope when God's way seems weak and foolish and confounding to us. Because let's be honest, God's ways are very often confounding to us, even his people, right? God doesn't always work the way you would work or I would work. God works in ways that men would not. So we should never lose hope. Well, consider the story of Joseph. Now think about Joseph for a moment. God gave Joseph dreams as, he, as, a, as a youth, as a boy. Dreams of greatness. Like his brothers are going to bow down to him. His parents are going to bow down to him. And when he told his Family, those dreams, they thought he was a little off his rocker. His mom and dad thought, you know, just silly boy. But his brothers, they got kind of upset. So God gave Joseph these dreams of greatness, and God brought those dreams to pass. You know how he did it? By first dashing those dreams. God dashed Joseph's dreams through the murderous plans of his envious brothers, those plans led Joseph to be sold into slavery and living as a prisoner slave for 13 years in Egypt. All the while, his father believed the lie that Joseph had been destroyed, had been killed, torn apart by wild animals. Joseph let go of his dreams but he didn't let go of his faith. God kept Joseph's dreams, and God preserved Joseph's faith and made him the great man, the great leader that he dreamed he would be, but he did even more than that. He made him a great savior because of Joseph, because of the dreams that God gave him and the dreams that God brought to fruition. Joseph saved the world, literally, from starvation. And all of this was worked out according to God's eternal purpose. It wasn't Joseph's will and it wasn't the will of his brothers that did this. It was the eternal plan and purpose of God. And God did it in a way that is absolutely contrary and foreign to the way any of us would have done it. Yet at the end, When all was revealed, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, it's easy for us to say that looking back. Hindsight. 
But the reason we look back at those and we see how God worked in the lives of men like Joseph is because God works in the same way in our lives today. And when we're in the midst of it and our dreams are dashed and our, and our hopes seem to be dashed and everything that we had planned and thought was going to be has come to nothing, we don't lose hope. We hope in God. And we know that God is a God who works in ways that we don't work. God sent Israel to Egypt to make him a great nation. God did that by allowing Israel to become slaves and to serve the Egyptians for 400 years. Israel came in as a household of about 70 people. And some 400 years later, they left with their number multiplied like the stars in the sand. And God multiplied Israel his way, contrary to what Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob could have imagined from an earthly perspective perspective. Here's how I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to make you slaves for about 400 years. Make your life really hard. We all want multiplication, right? We all want increase. But what happens when God says, well, here's how it's going to come. Then what do we say? Oh, wait a minute, God. (laughs) That wasn't quite what I was thinking. I had a different plan. That's why God doesn't always tell us what his plan is, because we wouldn't like it. We'd run from it. We'd reject it. It's really the grace of God that he doesn't show us and tell us everything that we we say we want to know. In reality, you better be glad he doesn't show you and tell you everything. Even though God foretold these events to Israel, they still struggled with doubt and unbelief. This is because they continued to see with natural eyes instead of seeing through eyes of faith. The Bible says that these things are examples to us. Israel and their sin and their unbelief, all that happened to them, they're examples to us today. We must deal honestly with our own unbelief. We must confront it. We must confess it to God. We must trust Him for the faith we need to walk in obedience to his word. We walk by faith, not by sight, even when his ways and his word may seem contrary to us and to our way, and they very often do. We need to remember that times and seasons teach us and encourage us to hope in God. God gives us times and seasons, and they teach us that hope springs eternal. you believe that? You should. If you're a Christian, you should believe that hope springs eternal. It doesn't matter how dark, how bleak, how impossible a situation may seem. Hope is always eternal in Jesus Christ. From fall and winter, God brings spring and summer. And we see new life spring forth from death. The leaves are just now really beginning to fall from the trees. And in just a few weeks, every deciduous tree in your yard, in your landscape, is going to be bare. There will be no leaves on there. It will just be barren branches. 
It would look dead if we didn't know better. But we do know better, don't we? God has given us times and seasons to help us and to remind us how he works in this fallen world. As it is with seasons and times, so it is with people and nations, and especially with our own hearts and our own lives. Out of darkness, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God brings dawn. He brings the dawn of each new day out of the dark of each night. I doubt there's a person here that goes to bed at night wondering if the sun's going to come up in the morning. It would be unusual if you said, Pastor Jeff, every night I go to bed, I am just absolutely fearful that the sun is not going to come up. Now, we just assume the sun is going to come up because it has all of our life, and there's no reason to believe it's not going to continue to do that for the rest of our lives and the rest of the lives of everyone in the foreseeable and not foreseeable future, regardless of what the climate changers tell you. Annie is still right. The sun will come up tomorrow, I promise you. Out of darkness, God brings light. The darkness does not mean there will be no more day. It means a new day is coming. When it gets dark, you don't go, oh my gosh, I wonder if day's coming. No, when it gets dark, you know that day is coming. The winter doesn't mean that spring is no more. In fact, winter is the surest sign that there will be a spring. Because spring always follows winter, just like day always follows dark. A time of decrease is often in God's plan to bring his increase. Crazy, isn't it, how God works? But that's exactly how he works. In unstable times, we must remember who our stability is and where it comes from so that we walk in faith and not in fear. Isaiah 33, 6 says, Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. That his is speaking of God. In other words, the fear of the Lord is God's treasure. You know what God encourages us to be? He encourages us to be treasure hunters. Remember the parable of Jesus? Jesus said man found a treasure hidden in a field. And what did he do? He ran home and he sold everything he had in order to buy that field so that he could possess the treasure the fear of the Lord is his treasure. The Bible also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. We need to seek his face we need to seek his treasure so that we will have wisdom and knowledge and the strength of salvation for the stability of our times. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This is what Isaiah wrote. 
concerning the birth, the coming of Jesus, 700 years before that baby was born in Bethlehem. The prophet penned those inspired words, and he says, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This promise is true, and God will continue to bring it to pass. But that does not mean winter will never come, or that darkness will never come, because they surely will. But with winter and with darkness will come spring, a new day, and light. And that cycle will happen until the day when darkness is no more and there is only ever the spring of new life. We're living in times that are darker now than they have been in years past. But that's not reason for us as believers to lose hope. It is reason for us as believers to be hopeful. Because where sin abounds, grace does abound much more. God is working. God is moving. God is doing something. I can't tell you how many people... We're so shocked at the election returns. And some of the people that have been in elected office here for decades lost their election. And they didn't lose them to, lot, to, to candidates who were similar to them. They lost them to candidates who were the exact polar opposite of them. And I've had people ask me, would you ever leave Williamson County? What do you think is happening to our county? And I've thought about that. But wait a minute. What are we talking about here? We're the salt and the light of the earth. We shouldn't be running from darkness. We should be running into darkness with our flames and our torches blazing, the light of Christ blazing to drive back the darkness We've sat in our ease just like the early church did in Jerusalem. You know, after Pentecost and the Spirit of God came down, they had a pretty good thing going there in Jerusalem. And everybody was just loving life. The only problem is Jesus gave his disciples a very specific command. He said, when you receive the promise of the Father... When you've been endued with power from on high, be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, they got the first part of it right. They became witnesses for him in Jerusalem, but the church just got stuck there in Jerusalem. And it didn't go anywhere. And you know what God did to motivate the church, to move the church beyond Jerusalem? He brought persecution. And you read Acts chapter 8, and the Bible says when the persecution came, the church scattered. Where did they go? They went into Judea. They went into Samaria, and they went preaching the gospel. And guess what happened? People got saved. The Samaritans, of all people, came to faith in Christ. Those dogs that the Jews hated, they came to faith in Christ. And God made Peter, James, and John go all the way down to Samaria and see for themselves with their own eyes that the same spirit that fell on them at Pentecost fell on the Samaritans. And then, you know what God did? 
craziest thing you could ever imagine. I mean, Peter is praying at noontime on the rooftop of his friend's house. And these Gentiles come and knock on the door. Gentiles come and knock on the door and say, hey, we're looking for a guy named Peter. Uh, Yeah, he's upstairs praying. Well, uh, God says that he's supposed to come with us. Peter, hey, there's some guys down here saying that you're supposed to go with them. They're Gentiles. I don't know. It's kind of weird, you know, because Jews and Gentiles don't like go together. And God says to Peter, Peter, let me show you something. See the sheet coming down from heaven is filled with every kind of animal, clean and unclean. Peter, kill and eat. God forbid. Lord, you know nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. God shows him the vision again, shows him again. Takes Peter a while to get things. Finally, God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And that's when the knock on the door came and the Gentiles were there. And God says, the Gentiles are at the door. Go with them. I know they're unclean to you, but I've made them clean. You go with them. I got a plan. And God, God leads Peter to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile. And before Peter can even get the gospel out of his mouth, God pours out his spirit on those Gentiles and they are saved. That's Acts chapter 10. Persecution's happening. Churches, it's just spreading all over the place because people were discomforted. Don't be alarmed by what's happening. Be encouraged by what's happening because the church has taken her ease. She's been more concerned about how to get people inside their buildings instead of equipping the believers to go outside the buildings and preach the gospel. Jesus never said create mega churches that are mega magnets to draw mega amounts of people. I mean, that's fine. I'm all good with that as long as that mega amount of people are equipped and then they're going out and they are spreading the gospel. That's not happening. You know how we know? Because we have people who make a living with numbers called statistics. Do you know where where church growth comes from in America? It does not come from evangelism. You know how churches grow in America? Someone starts a new church. They have a really good marketing scheme. They have really good programs. And you know what happens? People from other churches leave those churches and go to the new church. And that church is the hot thing for a while. Then another new church starts up. And then those people kind of like, well, you know, this is okay. But let's go check this other new thing out. That is how the church grows in America. So the reality is the church doesn't grow. The church just kind of shifts people around. Do you know what is a glaring omission in the Great Commission? Jesus didn't say go into all the nations and shift people around to different churches in different times. He said no. He said go and make disciples In other words, go and find the lost and make sure that they are found. Go to the lost and preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek to everyone who believes. That's what we're commanded to do. That's not what we've been doing. So here's my theory. God says, okay, I'll help you out, just like I helped the church in Jerusalem out. 
you've been pretty comfortable here for several centuries. And you've kind of just let things kind of go by the wayside, just assuming everything's going to be the same. But God says if you don't continue in the things that you started in, those things aren't going to just continue on their own. That's why prayer is so important. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes us and conforms us to his way and to his will. So we need to pray, church. That's the first thing. We need to cry out to God in repentance and faith, pleading for his mercy and his power to move in our own hearts and in the hearts of all those who are his people. Do you remember the Sunday after 9-11? Do you remember that the churches were packed? They were packed. The church was packed here. The church was packed everywhere. Do you remember that it was just a few short weeks after 9-11 that the churches weren't packed anymore? Mm -hmm. We need to pray. That's the first thing. You know what the next thing is? We need to keep praying. The children of Israel cried out to God for many generations before God moved to bring about their deliverance from Egypt. We must not grow weary in doing good or in praying for God's delivering hand to heal our land. We need to pray without ceasing. That's the most important thing. That means that we are to live in an unceasing position or attitude of prayer and communion with God. And as we understand the times and see the destruction of the darkness in the hearts of men, we are to never see that darkness without the hope and the assurance of a new day and a greater victory. Did you hear me? You can see the darkness, you can look at the darkness, but never see and never look at the darkness without a greater hope for a greater victory inside of you because that's what Jesus promises. As God has done in each of us in Christ, he has shown a light in our dark hearts. And when we see darkness, we must pray for light and wait for light to dawn for darkness will surely give way to light when God breaks the dawn. If you don't believe me, get up before the sun comes up and see who wins, light or darkness. Light's going to win every time. God broke the dawn when he sent his son. He continues to break the dawn as he continues to reveal his son in the hearts of men by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And as you have experienced his grace by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, I invite you to come to this table to eat and to drink and to proclaim his body and his blood. Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, discern the body of Christ. And I want you to do that. But as the body of Christ, I also want you to discern the times that we're living in. I want you to understand them, and I want you to know what it is you need to do. God will show you. May we be obedient.
I invite you, as you trust in Jesus, to come to the table. I really, I was thinking, you know, my dad was a World War II vet. And had uncles who were there as well. And I know my dad walked across Europe into Germany. When I was a kid, that just, you know, my dad never really talked a lot about that. My uncle, one in particular, never talked about it. And then as I got older, I heard, you know, about the horrors that they had experienced, and they didn't want to talk about it. But as I got older and I began to learn history, and I realized my, my father walked into a country that committed genocide against millions of people. Not, not, not people that are hidden in a womb, but I mean people that they went and rooted out and pulled out of their homes and loaded up on rail cars and sent them to camps and just wholesale slaughtered them any way they could, the most efficient way they could. Because they didn't consider these people worth living. Because of what they believed and what they represented. And that almost seems unbelievable to me standing here today. Yet, that was in my father's day. That was not long ago. Yet we live in a world and we talk about these things as if they could never happen again, but they happen every day. They've been happening. They didn't just happen in World War II. They happened in, in the 60s, in Cambodia. They happened in China. Hundreds of millions of people murdered just because of what they believed or didn't believe. That's it. Nothing more. Because they were educated. Because they had something that was deemed dangerous. And I'm saying these things, church, because I don't want this to just be another sermon that you heard. I'm serious. I want you to realize that we are living in serious times. And it is, it is time for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to get serious about her faith. Jesus did not play a game when he died on the cross. He didn't die on the cross just so that we could live our life any way we wanted to and just have a ticket punched to heaven. That's what Christianity is to most people. It's just a ticket punched that guarantees them a spot in heaven. But how they live their life here doesn't really matter much. What you stand for, what you believe in, what you stand up for, what you bend for, what you compromise for, we just... We just write all that off as, eh, you know, that's really not that important. No, it's really that important. Men like my father and your fathers and uncles and those before them spilt their blood so that we could be free. But that all came because Jesus spilt his blood so that we could be free. And the freedom we have right now is because of the blood of Jesus that was spilt on our behalf. And our culture is fast rejecting that out of hand. Completely out of hand. And we're going to be left with the decision. 
Christ Fellowship Church, what's your decision going to be? Are you going to stand or are you going to fall? Are you just going to kind of play it low-key until then? Are you going to fly under the radar and hope that you're never caught? Are you going to stand up and be a light in the darkness and be salt in this earth? Your charge today is to understand the times and to pray so that you know what to do. If we're people who understand the times and know what to do, prayer is key for us. And when it comes to understanding and knowing what to do, then having the conviction and the courage to do that, because we can know what to do, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have the conviction and the courage to do what we know to do. I'm not just talking about knowing, I'm talking about faith through your works. That you don't just know what to do, but you have the conviction and the courage to do what needs to be done. The courage of our conviction and the obedience of faith will come through the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men and women. And as we pray, our praying should be spirit-filled, spirit-led, and powerful. Our praying should be informed and grounded in the Word of God. Our praying should be in faith, not in fear. Our praying should be with thanksgiving, even in the darkness, even in the difficulties, in all things and for all things. Give thanks, the Bible commands us. Our praying should be effective, fervent, and prevailing over the appetites of our flesh and the things that so easily distract us and draw us away. Our praying should be for all men, for all of God's glory. Christ Fellowship, I urge you to watch and to pray and to stand in faith. We need to be a people who understand the times and know what to do. This will not happen unless we are a people of unceasing prayer. So pray, church. Pray. Our future depends on it. I want you to look at these babies all around us, their future depends on it. I want you to think about your children. Their future depends on it. What kind of world will they live in? Your prayers, your willingness to stand, your willingness to take a stand is going to determine much about the world they live in. God's going to have his way. Victory is ours. The question is, what will we go through in order to see that? Amen.